0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: It's Thursday, December 22nd, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pasca. The United States must greatly strengthen and expand its nuclear capability until such time as the world comes to its senses regarding nukes. So saith our president-elect, Donald Trump. I think he thinks the until such time makes it uninsane. And what is this? What is this senseless world that he speaks of? The world needing to come to their senses. Let's do the nuke rundown. U.S. has about 7,000 nuclear warheads. The Russians are new allies. The Russians, they have a little more than 7,000. China, France, couple hundred. Pakistan, India, they got maybe high double digits. Same with Israel. South Africa, South Africa can make one. So when you do all the math and see who has the nukes and see who needs to come to their senses... As Cindy Lauper and Dan Aykroyd sang, we are the world. No one wants a nuclearized world more than the U.S. That's why we have such a nuclearized world. The Russians, they're to blame too. Our new allies, the Russians. But it's us, we're driving the car. Up until this presidency, I didn't think it was over a cliff. The U.S. is the country with the greatest nuclear capacity, not meaning just count the warheads, but the ability to do damage from those warheads, to deploy them from land, sea, and air, to actually be sure that the missiles will work. It's the rest of the world. It's this nutty, unnuclear rest of the world. That's the thing that warrants a bigger buildup. That is like Tony Montana in Scarface saying, I suspect my rivals are going to snort all the coke. I need more coke. Or... You know, until Japan and the UK get a sensible gun policy, I'm going to arm myself in my bunker with a dozen more AR-15s. Cut to the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Until the rest of the world backs off overwrought hair metal Christmas music, we're going to have to put out a double album now, and it's going to include more chimes. Dermot Mulrooney. Until the rest of the world changes its stance on acting, I will need to become more wooden. Kim Kardashian. You know what my problem is? Underexposure. Freeze company. Maybe we should have relied on more coincidences. Hillary Clinton. I uh, spent too much time in Wisconsin. And in pantsuits. Mike Pesca. Analogies. They're just a paucity of analogies on this show and not tortured enough. Oh god, Trump on nuclear. You know, I guess it's like this. Maybe I've not been taking him seriously. Maybe I've just been taking him <laughs> mushroom. On the show today, it's beginning to look a lot like a vicious takedown of Christmas carols. But first, the year was 1976. The music topping the charts was disco. The man who refuses to duck, quack, quack, his assignment to count down the number ones of the year. That number 200 in U.S. history is Chris Malamphy. S A T U R D A Y. Well, you could listen to this anytime you want, but the reason I'm spelling the words to Saturday is that was a Bay City Rollers number one hit. It was the number one, number one song of 1976. Chris Malamphy is here. What we do is we take a year, we talk about all the number one hits. So why not do the year that uh, was 40 years ago, today and next week, but not for too much longer? Chris also writes the Why Is This Song
0: Number One column for Slate. Hello, Chris. Hey, Mike. How are you? Was the Bay City Rollers a real band or a TV show? The Bay City Rollers were a real band. They were a Scottish <laughs> band. They were uh, kind of a boy band, not boy band in the in sync Backstreet Boys model, but boy band in the hmm, Jonas Brothers Five Seconds of Summer model. They actually played instruments. They were a rock band. But did but they have they a were, TV show? I remember them having a TV I, show. They were heavily promoted. Yeah. They they were <laughs> definitely a Tiger Beat kind of band. They they when they hit, they hit big, and they had like a, a roughly two year run, at least in America, of you know screaming fandom and Saturday Night, which is the first number one song in 1976 in January of 1976 was their signature hit oddly not a big hit in their native United Kingdom it was uh, record executive Clive Davis who heard this as an album cut and said that thing where you guys spell out Saturday that's a hit Uh, sure enough, it became their biggest hit in America.
1: One of the best spelling songs, R-O-C-K in the USA, or R-E-S-P-E-C-T, but not in the title. That would be a good list, the best spelled songs of number one hits. We should do that sometime. Yes. So the next number one song is one of a few, I will say, either pure novelty songs or Mm -hmm. near novelty songs, Convoy by C.W. McCall. (laughs) Do you remember this one?
0: It was the dark of the moon on the 6th of June in a Kenworth pulling logs. Cab over Pete with a reefer on and a Jimmy hauling hogs. We is heading for bear on i 10 about a mile out of Town. I says, Pigpen, this here's a rubber duck and I'm about to put the hammer down. Convoy by C.W. McCall is about uh, the CB radio fan. Sure. Uh which, which was reaching a peak at the beginning of 1976. Poor
1: good buddy, I'd have on my cap
0: breaker one, breaker one. Uh, CB stands for citizen band. It was a technology that dated back to the 1950s, but it took off in the 1970s and suddenly uh, folks who were not truck drivers at all uh, found themselves outfitting their uh, their hot rods with yeah. uh, CB radios and, you know, communicating with their uh, their convoy of fellow CB radio enthusiasts. And truckers
1: were big. Uh, Smokey and the Bandit and, and BJ and the Bear and Cannonball Run all had truckers. Long haul trucking. That was a big thing back in 1976. Now, Still is, but it got more media attention, I should say.
0: This was also, this was both a pop and country hit, and, and uh, country fans uh, regard this song somewhat more seriously, I think, than pop fans do. C.W. McCall never had a, another pop hit, but uh, in, in country circles, Convoy is... Uh, is Let's say more esteemed as as a as a cultural slice of life record than uh, than the pop audience regards
1: it. It's also appeared on The Simpsons and CJ is in the Iowa Rock and Roll Hall of Fame.
0: Yes, he is an Iowan.
1: Uh, two other novelty songs. This is a pure novelty, Disco Duck by Absolutely. Rick Dees. Was Rick Dees a DJ then? And yes. He, and not just Rick Dees, also his cast of idiots. I'm about to show up.
0: Here, there's absolutely no question this is a novelty record. Rick Dees conceived it as a novelty record. He saw that disco was getting huge. 1976 is a big year for the the rise of disco. And he thought, well, we could have some fun with this. The full uh, artist credit for this record is Rick Dees and his cast of idiots, which tells you all you need to know about how seriously Rick Dees himself took this record.
1: Now this, I don't know, is it Novelty of Fifth of Beethoven? This is where they took uh, the famous Beethoven's Fifth Symphony and just took a few bars and kind of discoed it up. But it was also in Saturday Night Fever.
0: Right? It was not Saturday Night Fever. In fact, I'm glad you brought that up. There are uh, three number one hits in this year of 1976 that later wound up being featured in Saturday Night Fever, uh, which didn't come out for another year. Saturday Night Fever comes out in late 77. So eventually when you and I talk about the number one hits of 1977, we'll have to talk about uh, Saturday Night Fever. But um, three of these number one hits wound up up on that soundtrack uh, or being featured in the movie. Disco Duck actually appears in Saturday Night Fever in a scene where uh, the uh, lewd uh, studio owner is uh, teaching a bunch of old ladies how to disco dance. He's uh, playing them Disco Duck. A Fifth of Beethoven by Walter Murphy and the Big Apple Band plays prominently when Tony Manero and his crew are walking into the Odyssey 2000 nightclub. And it is, as you say, an instrumental version of the Ludwig van Classic. Interestingly, because Walter Murphy wrote the pieces of it that are not the melody to a fifth of beethoven he got to share writing credit uh with ludwig van beethoven which meant that when it was featured on the soundtrack to saturday night fever it made him quite wealthy indeed <laughs> and finally uh you should be dancing by the Bee Gees is a number one hit in 1976 and uh it too was then featured a year later in saturday night fever in a very prominent scene where uh, john travolta does his solo dance to you should be dancing
1: The Four Seasons, which you might associate with an era or a decade before 1976, had a number one hit which explicitly evoked a decade before the 70s, December 1963, Oh, What a Night.
0: Yeah, what a wonderfully improbable number one hit. In fact, if I can take a step back, one of the things that's interesting about 1976, it's often been said that uh, when disco took off, a lot of older folks, uh, you know, folks who had been having hits in the 60s tried their hand at the sound of disco. And uh, I would say uh, December 1963, Oh, What a Night, it's not a 100% pure disco record, but it's a dance record without question. And uh, it's got some of the orchestration of a disco record
1: so there are some songs on this list that are for better or worse standards certainly well-crafted pop songs i'll name a couple of them afternoon delight by the starland vocal band (laughs) play that funky music uh the white boy is
0: not in the title but just uh that's the next lyric as for uh, Afternoon Delight, uh, you can credit or blame that song to John Denver, who does not sing on it. Uh, he's not involved in the recording at all. But uh, John Denver is the man who broke one half of the Starland Vocal Band. The Starland Vocal Band. And then
1: the, and then the Starland Vocal Band broke us all.
0: Yes, they really did. <laughs> um, the Starland Vocal Band, who, by the way, won the Best New Artist Grammy for 1976 sure, an Albatross around their neck because they never had num- another hit. Boo! <laughs> exactly a, um, they were
1: a skyrocket in flight
0: but the, before they were the Starland vocal band uh, half of the group Bill and Taffy Danoff were part of a group called Fat City in the uh turn of the 60s and 70s, and uh, they wrote the song Take Me Home Country Roads, which was John Denver's breakthrough hit, a number two hit in, I believe, 1971. As thanks for uh, that uh, leg up, when John Denver became one of the biggest acts of the early 70s and got his own record label in 1975, he signed uh, the Danoffs and their friends as the Starland vocal band and gave them their recording contract and a number one hit with God Help Us Afternoon Delight.
1: Rockets
0: in flight. Delight. The
1: trivia goes deep because the Starland Vocal Band had a show, a variety show on CBS, and Letterman was a writer for it. That was like his first gig in Hollywood. I, I did not know
0: that. That's a, <laughs> that's a great piece of trivia. You mentioned uh, Play That Funky Music, sure. uh, White Boy, as we all know it. That's a, a really interesting record. Uh, it was a number one pop and number one RB record by a white rock band who were playing funk basically a wild cherry were a band from steubenville ohio who had been uh, touring clubs in the mid-70s and what they found that they were uh, uh, going from club to club and they even recount that in in one uh, club in pittsburgh somebody yelled this out to them they wanted to play rock but people would say to them play that funky music white boy and so finally out of frustration as much as anything else they said all right we can play funk and out came play that funky music It's basically their their only hit, but it was a, a massive success, topping both the pop and R and B charts.
1: Male solo artists uh, who were formerly involved with uh, famous groups or duets, uh, Rod Stewart and Paul Simon, also made the list. I would say "50 Ways to Leave Your Lover" the more enduring and less less creepy song than tonight's the night oh
0: I would absolutely agree with that <laughs> 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover is a, pre- is a pretty great single it's Paul Simon's uh, only number one hit as a solo act he'd had three with Art Garfunkel so me
1: and Julio never went number one
0: uh, no me and Julio was actually a, a small hit uh, at the time it was, top, it was a top 40 hit I believe it peaked at like number 22 Kodachrome wow. Kodachrome was, was a number song. two hit yeah Loves Me Like a Rock was a number wow. two hit Mother and Child Reunion I believe went to number four so he'd had but a
1: stuff went number one or just the album
0: uh, the album was a number two hit in nineteen. 19- 86, uh, but and, no song from Graceland. Uh, you Can Call Me Out was a top 40 hit. It, yeah. uh, it reached, uh, I believe, the top 20, 25. Wow, I thought
1: it was bigger. I guess yeah, it was yeah. everywhere on MTV. But
0: but yeah, but uh, Paul Simon in the 70s uh, was a, a you know consistent top 10 hit maker, but 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover" is his only number one hit.
1: Hop on the bus, cuz you don't need to discuss much. Just drop off the key and get yourself free. And Rod Stewart, Tonight's the Night, going to be all right. Oh, that video. Oh, so creepy. The gauzy Uh, lens. Everything about Tonight's (laughs) the Night is creepy.
0: Interestingly, Rod Stewart has had four number one hits in the Hot 100 over the decades. Tonight's the Night... Gonna be all right is the only one he wrote by himself. He didn't. He had uh, writing help on. Uh, Do you think I'm sexy in 1979? He had writing help on Maggie May back in 1971. But tonight's the night. If you find that song a little ooky, you have nobody to blame but Rod himself. He wrote it completely solo, uh, including the line "Spread your wings and let me come inside." Stay away from my. Window. my back door to disconnect the telephone line relax baby and draw that
1: blind
0: this is violating most campus codes of conduct right yeah, yeah there's even a theory that um it's it's an ode to pedophilia there's something very creepy about it loosen up You
1: You know, as I look, uh, I see divergence in the kinds of songs that were number one pop songs. Rod did well on the album charts, comparing the pop song singles charts to the album charts. Because the album charts are, are dominated by... Zeppelin, the Rolling Stones, sure. Uh, Frampton, Frampton was the biggest album that
0: year in '76. Yeah. yeah,
1: but is this where pop radio and something akin to? album-oriented rock radio began to emerge and there was a big uh, divergence.
0: I mean, AOR dates back to the late 60s, you know, in in the form of free-form radio that then became codified as AOR by the mid-70s. But yes, what you're seeing on the charts of 1976 is that there's very little pure rock this year. Most of what's dominating the top 40 is disco, easy listening, a couple of these novelty records like Convoy and Disco Duck. Among the rock acts who uh, appear during 1976 with number one hits, you've got... uh, folks like uh, Wings, as in Paul McCartney, uh, who have the number one song of 1976 with Silly Love Songs, a song that is, for all intents and purposes, a light disco song. Silly Love Songs is uh, basically, for Paul McCartney, an answer record. Um, implicitly an answer record to John Lennon, who uh, a few years earlier on How Do You Sleep talked about uh, how Paul wrote very soporific, uh, you know, easy-listening pop ditties. Mm-hmm. And uh, Paul's response is quite literally in the lyric, What's wrong with that? I'd yeah. like to know. And here I go again. And what's wrong with
1: that? I'd like to know. Cause here I go And the great thing about that song is both of those Beatles could listen to it and say, "C proves my point. Exactly. (laughs) Went to number one, and Lennon's like, yep, exactly what I was saying.
0: Spent five weeks at number one right in the summer of 1976 and was the number one hit of the year. But uh, McCartney was not alone. There were lots of 60s veterans who were trying on disco in uh, in 1976. Diana Ross had one of her biggest hits with Love Hangover, uh, a record that starts as a a sultry, almost ballad, and uh, turns into a full-on four-on-the-floor disco song halfway through. Motown at the time was very wary about recording disco songs, uh, and Diana was on Motown in this period, uh, but she was convinced by her producer Hal Davis to give it a try, and it was her first full-blown disco record, uh, and, and uh, rewarded for it with a number one hit.
1: Now, I want to end with this. It wasn't the first number one. It wasn't the last number one. It was only number one a week for a week. But shake, 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 shake. There are only three shakes in the parentheses. Shake Your Booty by Casey and the Sunshine Band did yes. something very important. Yes, I think it taught us all that a meaning of booty was rear end. Because I was looking up the (laughs) etymologies, and that was not a well-known or well-accepted phrase up until that point. So there is a, what do we think of when we hear booty? A before and after, and there is the demarcation line.
0: You may be right that uh, when it comes to the etymology of booty, uh, we have uh, Harry Wayne Casey of uh, Florida to thank for uh, the popular understanding of what booty means. Thank you very much.
1: Chris Malamphy. he writes the Why Is That Song Number 1 column for Slate, and his academies, these Slate Academies on pop music, when you were talking about Motown, uh, I remember having listened to them, are just some of the best content Slate has put out.
0: Thank you, Mike. That's yeah, very
1: kind. They're amazing. 1976 was the year. Thank you so much, Chris. My pleasure. And now the spiel. Most Christmas songs are not good. They're just familiar. Oh, wait, but they evoke childhood, but they remind me of loved ones and presents and familiarity. Yes, that proves my point, not rebuts it. You know, it's interesting how internal monologues can be so easily disproved. Anyway, as songs, very few Christmas songs are actually good songs. So... What's a good song? Well, subjective, of course, but it should be memorable, catchy, perhaps clever. Wait, wait, wait. The Christmas carols, they're they're memorable. I remember them. No. Curiously reasoned internal monologue. You don't remember them because they're memorable. You remember them because they've been pounded into you. The Star-Spangled Banner is memorable? It's not a catchy song, just played all the time before every ball game, and still most people forget the lyrics. What's a memorable song? You Can Call Me Owl's a memorable song. Da, 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 da. It's stuck. First time you heard it, you remembered it. I am not throwing away my shot memorable. Because if you like it, then you should have put a ring on it. Memorable. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Make the Yuletide gay. From now on, our troubles will be far away. Not actually memorable. Just played hundreds of hundreds of times. Most Christmas songs are not good, are not memorable, just have the benefit of being associated with Christmas and therefore guaranteed to be on this endless loop. But Mike, can you prove it? I can prove it. And Mike, if you prove it about most Christmas songs, does that mean it's true of all Christmas songs? It's not. Some are good, and I'll get there. And the reason that some are good is even if you have the advantage of a monthly monopoly... On even subpar music, there is competition to rule that month. It's not like everyone who ever tried to put out a Christmas song got a successful Christmas song that came in the rotation. Although the Christmas songs written in 1833, like God bless you, merry gentlemen, they're never going away and they're not good. Some Christmas songs, though, are good songs. White Christmas is the best-selling song of all time. And when Irving Berlin wrote it, he told his secretary, quote, I just wrote the best song I've ever written. Heck, I just wrote the best song that anybody's ever written. So I'll give it to White Christmas. But most Christmas songs are like those team anthems that you didn't even know exist for sports that you don't root for. Okay, that song, 0.5% of the audience, that song evoked nostalgia for maybe joy or hope. The other 99.5% said, awful song. And some of them, having witnessed the play of the Miami Dolphins, note that it's based on a bit of a lie. That, by the way, is how agnostics regard Christmas carols. Or maybe better yet, here's another analogy. There's a small sect. This sect doesn't have mainstream appeal, thinks of itself as an oppressed minority, toils fruitlessly. And that sect must have their own holidays, and that holidays probably has its own music, and they play that music, and maybe that sect thinks it's good. But what would happen if we took that sect, if we elevated that sect, and most everyone in America started buying into their ideals? Well, maybe there'd be the notion that their songs are now our songs, and their songs are good songs. Let me let me stop being opaque. Here's what I'm talking about. <gasps> Christmas music is like this. This song is a subpar song except to Cubs fans. And maybe, since most of us like the Cubs at least a little bit, we hear that song and we say to ourselves, oh, it's not that bad. We've given it some inflation based on its association. But it's exactly like the terrible Miami Dolphin song. Just because we like the Cubs more doesn't make the song better than the Miami Dolphin song. And Christmas songs are no better than just filler ditties in long-forgotten musicals, just disposable, nothing music. I can prove it. What you do is you change the lyrics to something non-Christmassy. I show mommy kissing Santa Claus oh, that's cute. You got Christmas, you got kids. Uh-huh. Alright, now let's take that and let's put it through the de process. We get something like this. I show mommy eating applesauce or I mommy kissing Hasselhoff not at all delightful and on to this one having a wonderful... dinner time again once more a wonderful... summertime who cares who cares if you're having a wonderful summertime these are sub no no nanette lyrics they're disposable dashed off musical twaddle brings me to the little drummer boy Positive, it builds like Bolero. Negative, the parumpa pum pum part. If parumpa pum pum were good placeholder lyrics, you'd hear parumpa pum pum in other songs. Na 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 na, those are good placeholder lyrics. Na 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 na, na 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 na, hey hey, goodbye. We even quoted some na 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 in the Terrible Journey song, hugging and lovin' and touchin' and squeezin'. Na 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 na. Next. God rest ye merry gentlemen It is all on the beat It's all staccato and not that deep And now I have a headache Change the lyrics I have a lovely ottoman Why don't you rest your feet? Also in the category of simple nursery rhyme-esque Simple tin Christmas songs
0: It's beginning to look a lot
1: like Christmas Everywhere you go, it's beginning to drive me freaking crazy to have to hear this song. The words are pat and lame. I just might go insane if you leave on Light FM for long. I think I turned it into a college fight song. Anyway, then you have all the songs that are rock and roll Christmas songs. Father Christmas by the Kinks, The Beach Boys, Little Saint Nick, Darlene Loves Christmas, and Santa Claus is Coming to Town, Bruce Springsteen version. Not good songs. Or if they are good songs, it's only because the Kinks, The Beach Boys, Darlene Love, and Springsteen are good artists. And those are the actual rock songs that were put out as Christmas songs. There's this subgenre of songs that pretend to be rock, Jingle Bell rock, rocking around the Christmas tree. Not rock, not good, but all Christmas. Here are some other bad Christmas songs. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. What, Rudolph? No, it's not better than any song in your average episode of the Backyardigans. Deck the halls, I'll be home for Christmas, and the loathsome, execrable, emetic, Here Comes Santa Claus. All right, so now we get to the good ones. Here are the good ones. Silent Night's a good song. Oh, Come All Ye Faithful. Now, that's a good song, and I can prove that it's a good song. Remember when I changed the words to Christmas songs? You know, I saw Mommy turn her head and cough, and it suffered? Well, something quite the opposite happened with Come All Ye Faithful. Come All Ye Faithful became Twisted Sisters, We're Not Gonna Take It. And it's a great song. And Joy to the World. That's a pretty good song. That's okay. And that's it. That's all I could come up with. So for Christmas... I suggest you put on some real music, some non-Christmas music. There are better choral works out there. They include John Tavner's The Lamb. Some think it's a Christmas work. It's not. It's really good. You got better Bing Crosby out there, swinging on a star. You got better hymns out there. Almost all hymns are better than the Christmas hymns. And you got better Gene Autry than that reindeer song, like Home on the Range. But I will say this, just about everything that I listed here, It's better than Adam Sandler's Hanukkah song. Well, except maybe here comes Santa Claus. Jump in bed, cover your head. We got to hear this crap for one more night. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson is roasting on an open fire. Just producer Chris Berube is nipping at your nose. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is being sung by a choir with folks dressed up like Andy Bowers, Chief content Officer of the Panoply Network, and Inuits, not Eskimos. Though it's been said many times, many ways, um peru de peru do peru, and good night.